Content warning. This show is intended for a mature audience. This episode specifically features discussion of pedophilia, incest, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. there, and welcome to Working Out the Kinks, the show where we take a feminist, LGBTQIA plus inclusive, kink positive look at sex and sexuality. I am your host, Jesse Hitch. Today, we're going to sit down and talk with Dr. Angela Johnson. She is a psychologist and evaluates sex offenders for their potential risk to offend again. Before we get started, we have a story from Reddit. I was at a friend with benefits house one evening. No small talk. We were ready to get down to it. She goes right for my pants. And within seconds, I am deep in her throat. I was 19 or 20 at the time, and she was 46. Her skills were unlike any I had experienced up to this point in my life. To say it was hot is an understatement. I normally would have finished in just a minute or two with this sort of treatment from her. This time seemed hotter than usual, though, but not the good kind. First, there was a general warm feeling. In only a matter of seconds, it began to escalate. Soon, it felt like the shitty part of putting on an icy hot patch. I was on fire. I jumped in the shower and lathered and lathered and lathered. Nothing helped. It just kept burning. 10-20 minutes later, it was down to a dull burning sensation, but not paralyzing anymore. We sit down to discuss what in the hell happened. Turned out that morning, like 14 hours beforehand... She and her friends at work had had a hot pepper eating contest. She won. I didn't. And now, on to the show. Okay. Cool beans. Well, hi. Hello again. Hi. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, you've heard a little bit about the show. Has Charles told you kind of what we're doing here, how we're rolling? I'm actually not sure I know anything about the show. Oh, well, let me tell you. So, basically, this is a, it's called Working Out the Kinks. It is a feminist, LGBTQIA plus inclusive, kink positive look at sex and sexuality. So, we're doing... We have lots and lots and lots of different people planned to come on and things like that. So we've already talked to her name was Erin Delaney. She's the program coordinator for Hustler. So we're getting the business side of porn. We're getting cam girls on. We're going to do just kind of a lot of different talks about sex and sexuality in today's world. So that's kind of what she is. I have someone uh, I know, actually, who's a sex therapist. And she she has a YouTube channel called Sex Stuff with Kristen. Sex Um, Stuff with Kristen. And her name is Kristen Kristen Hamburg or, or something like that. Anyway, I've met her. She's delightful. She's very personable and engaging. If you watch one of her videos, you'll be madly in love with her. If you reach out to her, um, just let her know you talk to me. Oh, yes. Oh, no. I'm like, I'm on her YouTube now and I'm already stoked. <laughs> like, 
cool. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I want to have her on. Well, if I ever get my podcast back up and running, I want to have her on my show too. She's she's terrific, but she's yes. a sex educator, and so any other topics you wanted to go into, she might even have a really different perspective mm-hmm. uh, than I'm going to have. So you know, I love it. Well, <clears throat> oh, I'm excited. Well, thank you, thank you for that. Yay, I'm stoked. I always love <coughs> having new <clears throat> new people to talk to. So I did send you some questions. Uh, yes. Um, so today, if you're cool with it, we're going to talk a little bit about porn addiction and sex addiction and what that looks and sounds like in our society today. Does that sound okay? Sure. Awesome. So I guess, could you start by introducing yourself for our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Dr. Angela Johnson. I'm a forensic psychologist. My specialty is really doing evaluations for the court and risk assessments uh, regarding sex offender behavior. Ooh. In many states, there's a civil commitment law where people can be held after they've completed their sentence for a sexual crime. And so I do those kinds of evaluations and testify in court. Wow. Okay, so I know I have other questions that I sent you, but I want to know more about what you do for your job. Like, so what is that like then? So you work basically with sex offenders and you you, you talk to them about their offenses. Right. So it, it's basically a, a risk assessment based on an understanding of the literature of sex offender recidivism. And so, you know, the, the idea in the culture is that all sex offenders always reoffend all the time without question. And in fact, that's not true. Um, it, it's a very small percentage of offenders that actually reoffend. And there are certain risk factors that you look for, certain um, kinds of protective factors that you look at. And so my job is really to assess whether or not people can be safe in the community without reoffending. Oh, wow. Oh, so what, what are some of the things that you look for when you're talking to people about and, and evaluating if they're going to reoffend. Well, I mean, it gets into sort of uh, the issues of why people engage in, in problematic sexual behavior in general, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we start talking about issues around compulsive sexuality. But, you know, it's, it's many of the same kinds of factors. So people are either, they have deficits in particular areas of being able to form certain kinds of relationships. They may have certain biological or learned uh, behaviors that contributed to a particular kind of sexual interest that is not sanctioned in our society. They may have other comorbid problems such as substance abuse, um, inability to maintain stable, appropriate relationships. So just all sorts of things that can contribute to why someone engages in that behavior. And then it's also what have they done to remediate some of those things? So how have they become more pro-social or how have they increased their abilities to form appropriate intimate relationships? Have they done treatment? Have they just gotten older and their sex drive has gone down? So there's all sorts of things that you look at and then you sort of have to, based on your training and experience and having done a lot of these cases, you kind of come up with a way to weight those factors in making your decision. Wow. That sounds like, kind of a heavy job. It can be. I mean, I think it's like any kind of job that involves risky behavior. I sort of, I I did a training recently for a bunch of therapists and I sort of joked about the fact that it's kind of like when you first start doing um, risk assessments for suicide, you're like really shy about asking certain questions and then you get just sort of used to it. And after a while you're like, okay, how are you going to do it? 
and they say, yeah. uh, I'm going to hang myself. And you're like, do you have any rope? You know, what beam are you going to use in your house? You just get really casual about it because you're just used to asking the questions. It's the same with these kinds of issues. You know, you're talking about like things like, okay, how, how much do you masturbate? What are your fantasies like? How, what kinds of rituals went into the setup of engaging in these behaviors. You just get really, really comfortable talking about it. Um, and the same in treatment. So when you're doing treatment with sex offenders or anyone who has compulsive sexual behavior, you just have to be really comfortable talking about the range of sexual experience that we have as human beings and understand that a lot of it may or may not really be dictated by our choices. Some of it may actually be inherent or uh, something we didn't have a lot of choice over something that may be like kind of a learned behavior then but also an orientation i mean this is sort of one of the okay. controversial areas of sex offender research which is sort of looked at whether or not in the same way we look at other kinds of sexual identities that having a particular kind of sexual interest in a particular object for instance children may mm -hmm. not be a chosen or a moral versus immoral kind of stance it may be something that someone is born with that kind of attraction. And all an identity means, a sexual orientation means, is that you didn't necessarily pick it. It usually has an onset around the age of puberty, and it's not likely to just sort of spontaneously go away. It, it's not whether or not it's good or bad, or whether we think it's okay or not. Um, and so these are some of the things that I have to go in and educate jurors because they're just lay people. They're just people coming in off the street about some of these issues so that they're not coming in this with a lot of pre predisposition toward um, thinking a certain way about people who engage in some of these behaviors. And I think a lot of this, it's, I know we're kind of off track, but it does really apply when you're talking about what is a sex addiction? What is pornography addiction? I mean, these things are really loaded in our culture from really strong moral standpoints, and they're not necessarily objective in the sense that we can like sort of go, okay, well, it's this thing. You know, it's, it's very subjective. No, absolutely. I've done a little bit of reading on on what you were talking about, whereas like pedophilia, it's an inherent it's it's like a sexual identity. And some people like I have a friend who claims to have a friend who is a pedophile, but he's never offended. He's just attracted to children and he says he will never offend but he knows that that is that is what he is sexually attracted to. So it's interesting that you go into that because our first instinct is to just be like, no, it's wrong. It's disgusting, which absolutely like can't be doing that. But also, you know, if it's something that they can't choose and they have no choice over, you know, what are we really looking at there? You know, it, it brings up this whole new set of problems and a whole new set of questions that need to be answered, I think, which is, I think, a, a really interesting conversation uh, probably a hard conversation to have but <laughs> yes. it's an interesting conversation if yeah, nothing and, else and if people are interested in that kind of you know thinking or looking in the research in that um jesse Baring, who's uh, i think he's written for like the new york times or new york magazine he's he's, he's uh, you know just a writer but he wrote a book a couple of years ago called perv the sexual deviant in us all and basically he looks at a lot of this literature and and sort of goes through uh, the models and and the, what we know about some of these behaviors. And it's really, it's very light. It's very approachable for people who aren't in the field. And it, it really does sort of cover the things that we don't always have a lot of choices about. Now, we always have choices about our behavior. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what we like or don't like, 
you know, sometimes those things are kind of beyond our control. Um, and so it, it's a really, it, it's a really interesting book. So I would recommend it. Definitely. No, I'm going to add that to my re- to my reading <laughs> list because I, I think it's important that we, we examine all of these issues. And in running a sex podcast, that's probably going to come up at some point. So, um, and, and also, as you know, I mean, behavior is not the same as orientation either, right? If right. you ask people what behaviors they've engaged in, there's a lot higher percentage of people who will admit to engaging in behaviors, for instance, people who identify as heterosexual, but who admit to have engaged in behaviors with someone of the same sex. It's mm-hmm. not their sexual identity, but it's a behavior they've engaged in. And so there's with, with all, all of these kinds of things, just because someone has engaged in a behavior doesn't mean that that's their preference. It just may be something they did for, you know, a lot of reasons. A lot of things may have been contributing to it at the time. Oh yeah. There's something, okay, so I know we're, we are kind of off track, but it's totally <laughs> fine because this, you know, I, I prefer the show to be more of a conversation anyway. So we'll get into the into the addiction and all of that, but it does tie in. You're right. But so I've seen on the internet articles about like dolls that are made to look very realistic and look like children. Do you think that that can help somebody who is a pedophile? And, and help keep them from offending on a real person? Or do you think that that is something where it's like a gateway and they, they can like where it'll escalate? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, there's there's been a really huge debate about that. Even uh, some of the researchers that are very well known and well published in the field of uh, offender recidivism have, you know, weighed in on these. And I think it's one of those things where it's hard to know. It's almost impossible to study because you can't get funding. Um, So it's kind of like child pornography too. I mean, there are a lot of people who, who may have an attraction to children and may satisfy that through child pornography and never actually offend Um, in the same way. Could those kinds of people then sort of meet this need through this vicarious um, method that doesn't hurt anybody? per se. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's probably yes and no. There's probably some people for whom that would be enough. And there's other people for whom that would create a desire for something that was more authentic and lifelike. And, and unfortunately, as I said, I think the problem is that it's hard to get even the study done. I think they are trying to do it in some other places. I think I read about something that they were trying to do in like Germany or Mm -hmm. um, in some place in Europe, but it, it's something that would be worth considering if people can learn to manage their impulses um, and and d- drive them in more um, socially appropriate ways. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the idea behind fetishes. I mean, fetishes right. don't necessarily hurt anyone, but they can. So it's like, you know, if you have a fetish about women's underwear, it's fine. But if you're breaking into women's houses to steal it, that's not fine, right? No, right. It's not, so, yeah. All of these, all of these things have contingencies, and um, I think we should be more open about exploring the ways in which we can meet people's needs as well as keep people safe. Um, so I think it's a conversation definitely worth having, and research should definitely be done. Oh yeah, well because if if more research could be done and people did have more of an outlet, it, that was a safe and healthy thing for them to engage in, where it's not hurting anybody, then you know maybe we would see less human trafficking and child sex trafficking and things like that where people are getting hurt or it could maybe cut down on that or something but you're right there's no way to know until we are able to have an open and honest communication about it 
But right. so many people, they're just it, immediately, it's like, no, you cannot talk about this. There's nothing to talk about. Exactly. And, and it goes back to the ways that we think about sex, especially in this country, but in many cultures as well, where we have these sort of absolutist ideas about what is correct and what is not correct when it comes mm-hmm. to sexuality, which again, goes right in the conversation about you know, what is sex addiction? What is porn addiction? I mean, it depends on who you are. Yeah. So, so what would you then qualify as a porn addiction or as a sex addiction? Well, I mean, I think from a psychologist's perspective, the way that we look at most problems is whether or not we even understand what their etiology is. So why, why they exist in the first place. And there's a, a lot of theories around addiction all addictions that have to do with whether they're biological, genetic, whether they're learned, um, whether they meet some sort of basic human need we all have, but it's being met in a not helpful or maladaptive way. But setting that aside, when we think about whether or not something is an addiction or a disorder or a problem, we usually think about when it begins to negatively impact the person in either their social, occupational, Sphere. So it's causing some harm in their life, in their relationships, in their ability to take care of themselves and their livelihood. Then we start to think of that as being a problem or a disorder. As I said, though, what you actually say is an addiction is really open to debate because is looking at pornography every day an addiction? Is it an hour a day, two hours a day? You know, we tend to try to draw these lines based on surveys and frequency and intensity. Um, We try to define what's normative based on the culture at large, but people aren't very forthcoming about this data. Right. So it's not (laughs) like we even actually know what the rates are that people are engaging in a lot of these things. So I think it's really hard to say what's an addiction when... In addition to doing my forensic work, I do have a private clinical practice and I've had clients come in saying they have a sex addiction or saying they have a porn addiction. And when you start to talk to them about it, it, there's a lot of variance in what they consider to be a problem, but the fallout of it or the effects that they're having are usually what dictate whether or not they consider it to be a problem. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, totally. So when it comes to, you know, pornography, do you think that porn is, is it a positive thing in society? Is it a negative thing? Or is it just something that just is, and it's just kind of up to the person consuming the content and and the effect that it has on that person? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, this is like one of those things where it's yes and no. Right. Um, I mean, even when you go back to, you know, whether or not something is an addiction, you know, with any with anything, right? So you're talking about... Things like food, alcohol, drugs, a lot of these models that are very disease oriented, they're very much based on the idea that we're sort of out of control and we have no power over something. And, you know, so we either have to spend all of our time trying to manage it, but but we're still always going to have this identity as an addict. You know, I mean, that's, that's a problem. And then it sort of distances ourselves from the culture that we live in, right? I mean, the the addiction doesn't reside completely in a person, right? It's right. like it, it's in a society that has certain attitudes about sexuality and what's okay and what's not okay. 
pornography runs the gamut, right? I mean, there's pornography that is done uh, in uh, ways that are very demeaning to the participants that are very harmful in their depictions of what is healthy sexual interaction that include things like pain that is not consented to right. um, that includes objectifying. There's a lot of problems with pornography, but there's also a lot of people out there who are doing erotica or pornography that is trying to be feminist or trying to be inclusive right. and trying to show the breadth of sexual experience that's available to people. And in that sense, that could be a positive. Unfortunately today, because we have such a horrible system of educating our young people about sex, oh, yes, uh, pornography becomes yes. the default. Mm -hmm. And so I would say whether or not it's a problem depends a lot on what the person is partaking of, the variety that they're partaking of, and also their own individual factors that may be making things worse or better, you know? So someone who's, you know, got good attachments, good role models, there's, you know, not a lot of, you know, violence or trauma or issues, seeing even what we would argue to be like not super feminist, inclusive pornography may not have much of an effect. But right. for someone who comes from a trauma background, who's had poor role modeling in terms of intimate relationships, who has poor attachments, um, who has a lot of other compounding variables, that person seeing the same material might internalize it in a completely different way. So it just kind of depends on you and your own personal situation. So it's it's one of those things where it's it's not so black and white it's not so cut and dry which is i think the whole point of the show for one thing but also the whole point of sexuality there's not just it's not just black and white You're, and it's not just right and wrong and all of that there's a whole scale of things right i mean yeah. you know what what is okay in terms of sexuality I mean, it depends on when you are and where you are, right? right? I mean, that that changes even today. I mean, you know, you can argue that we as a society, so Western society has decided that, you know, sex with arguably mostly in most states with anyone under the age of 16 to 18 is a crime, whether that person is in a relationship with a person they're having sexual contact with or not. Right. Um, other societies look at it differently. I mean, you look at like the Cambodian love huts, you look at other cultures that have sort of an, a rite of passage that includes some adult child contact, but then the children are expected to sort of move beyond that at a certain point. There's these things are so influenced by culture. They're influenced by time. They're influenced by laws and religion and what we consider to be normative I mean, I used to, I used to say in my human sexuality class when I taught at Roger Williams, you know, the age of consent, what's, what's the age of consent when someone can say yes or no to sex? I mean, it depends, right? right? In the colonies, it was 10, right? but, well, the, but they didn't live that long, you know? <laughs> so. Right, exactly. You were expected to pop out a couple kids at 14, so. And we know a lot more about the neuroscience and the development of children now than we used to, too. I mean, we used to think they were little adults, right? They're not. Right. So these things all evolve with time, but the fact that we don't even talk about them, um, you know, if someone's 15 years old and nine months, is that old enough? If someone's 17 but has a cognitive 
issue right. that makes them much younger. There's all these very complicating factors. And so it's hard to just draw a hard line and say, this is okay sexuality, this isn't. Right. Well, and, and I think it really just depends on your maturity level, I guess, is the, the way that I think about it. Because I, like, straight up, I was sexually active when I was 14, but I had been with my boyfriend at the time for two years. We loved each other and we dated on and off through high school. And then again, after however many years, we lived together for a long time. We talked about getting married and all of that. We're not together anymore, but... At the time, it was just a natural progression of things, and it wasn't something I ever felt forced. I was ready to do it. I was happy to do it, and that's and I wanted to. And I was 14, so I think it just kind of depends on the person, you know? And as long as everybody is consensual, you know? Because he was, he was the same age, so we were both young. We both had no idea what we were doing. But it was, it was you know, problematic in that we were young, and not being super safe about things but you know i just i don't know i think it it just kind of depends on the emotional maturity which is definitely a lot harder to measure than physical maturity does that make sense yeah i mean our bodies definitely get ahead of us and in in mm -hmm. and the other thing is too i mean even even you know the development of puberty is varied right i mean you can see two uh, 14 year old boys next to each other and one looks like he's 19 and one looks like he's 11. You know, I mean, we don't all reach the same physical development, emotional development, cognitive development in a straight line. It, it's not, that's not how it works. Right. Um, I think again, when you're talking about sort of, you know, vulnerabilities, and people, you know, one of the one of the vulnerabilities that's been seen in terms of having struggles with sexuality or problematic sexual behavior has been viewed or has been uh, documented as being early exposure to sexual content. So sort of prior to when even when we think like puberty, when people start right. to have those sexual feelings. So any kind of sexual abuse that occurs before that can make someone vulnerable. Again, it's not a cause and effect. More people are abused sexually than ever sexually abuse anyone else or engage in problematic sexual behavior, but it is it's 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 a vulnerability that a person may have right um just like having you know growing up in an environment where there's not a lot of attachment or caregiving or boundaries or i mean there's all sorts of things. But I think it's hard to legislate that, right? We can't say, well, this 14-year-old is mature and this one isn't. And so we just draw a line and say, exactly. you're 16, you're good. You're 15 and 11 months, you're not good. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and that arguably doesn't help us. What would help us more is talking more about sex with our kids when they're much younger and having conversations about what sex is instead of what it isn't. You know, a lot of times we talk about all the negativities of sex. You yes. Know, we talk about STIs and we talk about pregnancy and we talk about the emotional entanglements and heartbreak and all of those things that can happen, which is all true. I mean, we should educate our children about that. Oh, but do we talk about like pleasure and connection and intimacy and reciprocity and mutuality and all of that, all the good stuff about sex. We really don't. 
And especially for girls, I mean, with, you know, boys, they kind of get a little bit more in terms of even their understanding of their bodies. Girls, it's like, you know, you go to a fifth grade health class and all you have is a uterus. Right. And ovaries and a period. Oh, yeah. No, you don't talk about the actual anatomy of the vagina and the vulva and the labia and what everything is and why it is and and all of that. Like, I remember being told like just get a mirror and look at it and like there was nothing else like it was just like just look at it once in a while and call it good and it's, or a, it's or frustrating a yeah or a clitoris like how yeah. i mean who, who knew you had one of those until you know i mean like they didn't tell you about that in fifth grade right <laughs> oh they sure did not <laughs> and they didn't tell you you should masturbate and like get to know your own body and what feels good and doesn't feel good Seriously. so that you're not in a position where you're looking to some other human being who, you know, often is like not any more experienced than you are to give you pleasure when you don't even know what that would look like or feel like, you know, oh, yeah. I, mean, I remember years ago when some, someone who was up for attorney, uh, like the, Oh gosh, I can't even think of the name now, but basically, you know, like sort of was advocating for the fact that we should like tell kids that they should masturbate mutually instead of having intercourse. And it was like anathema. It's like, no, I would, that's, that's good. That's a good place to start. You know, it's a like, very good place to you start. You don't have to go straight to intercourse. There's a lot more risks there. Let's start with stuff that just feels good and nobody's going to get pregnant or an STD probably. Right. And if we or make it something that's, that's, Yeah. It, is it STD or STI now? I always see STI now. It's STI, but it, yeah. it, date, it dates me because I started. I learned STDs. <laughs> I did too. Yeah, in my fifth grade health class when they showed pictures of gonorrhea, that was great. Oh my gosh, <laughs> scarred me for life. It was awesome. <laughs> Sex education shouldn't scar you for life. I feel like, and I feel like so much of it is so bad. Like I, I was talking about this last in my last um, interview and how we had teacher, we had the abstinence only programs. So they would come mm -hmm. around and they would be like a woman who's had sex is like a used, like a chewed up piece of gum. And I was like, ow, my feelings. <laughs> That's cool. Or like they would take a piece of tape and bring the boys up, but not the girls, but the boys. And she would put a piece of tape on their arm and like rip it off. And they would, of course it hurt because she'd rip out their hair She's like, yeah, that stings, doesn't it? And that's what it's like when you have sex and they, they rip you apart emotionally. And then she held up the piece of tape after doing this to like three different guys and then like was showing that the tape wasn't sticky anymore. So she's like, see, she's lost her bonding power. And I was like, I don't know, 14. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, what the hell? Even that, like, it's horrible. Just, right. And that's like what our kids are be are being taught in school. And it's just, ugh, that's the whole reason why we started this whole podcast. And every single, this is episode five now that we're recording now, every single one of my um, guests has said the sex education in the United States is utter crap. Well, so, it, it's inconsistently crap. I mean, there are is, places yeah. that are teaching comprehensive sex education, um, which includes things like um, masturbation and mm -hmm. different orientations and sexual interests. And there are places that are doing that, but it's not enough. And I mean, you look at comparatively to other countries, like the comparisons always to the Dutch yes. because they're so much more progressive than we are and how they have much lower rates of pregnancy. They have much lower rates of coercive sexual situations. They have much less rates of 
kids getting STIs. Parents are able to talk to their kids about sex. Kids are able to share their experiences. Pleasure is seen to be both for men and women. Sex is seen to be in the context of a relationship. I mean, there's so many more benefits to giving our kids all of the information and then letting them, I mean, don't we want our kids to have healthy sex lives? Like to me, it's like we want them to like brush their teeth and we want them to take care of their bodies. We want them to exercise and, but we don't want to teach them about this like very huge and important part of being human, which is this bonding that takes place through physical intimacy. Exactly. And it's so hard because when you do become sexually active then, but you've been taught all this time that first of all, sex is bad and sex does feel good, but it's bad and it's shameful and it's dirty and it's wrong. So like you're getting people that have these like convoluted feelings about it and conflicting, like just conflicting feelings on, on what it is that they should feel about sex and what it can really be a great intimate, awesome experience with another human being. And so do you think that that kind of ties in then with some of the compulsive sex or mm, how did you phrase it? Compulsory? Compulsive sex behavior. Well, I mean, compulsive sex behavior. There there are a lot of people who will tell you that there's no such thing as sexual addiction because of the reasons that we said, like, where are you going to draw the line? Right. You know, I mean, what, what, what is your version of sexual addiction and my version might be completely different, but um, yeah, anything that's compulsive that feels like the person doesn't have control or that it's harming their relationships in some way. But yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of study that's been done on um, whether or not, you know, having strong religious faith or having very strict uh, dogmatic views about what sexuality should be is actually um, contributing to um, excessive use of things like the internet or high risk sexual behavior. Um, You know, and there's been inconsistent research depending on who does it. And again, people aren't honest about this stuff, especially, you know, it's so easy to hide the internet stuff. Right. You know, once you get into like you're hooking up with strangers in a, in a bathroom at Denny's, like it gets riskier, but, (laughs) but I mean, just sitting at home on your internet, you know, and especially now with all of, you know, most of it's free, it's not even professionally done, right? you know, it's, it's not real hard to to view, to view that kind of material. So people don't have to be honest about it. But I think it's one of those things where the more repressed people are about what's acceptable sexually, I think it can, for some people, um, put more pressure on them that they feel like they can't manage and they can't deal with. And so then it comes out in these ways that are not necessarily as adaptive. So talking about then compulsory sex behavior, we're going to bring up Brock Turner because I'd like to get your opinion on this and what do you feel like alcohol and all of that? I mean, obviously it does kind of contribute to that, but do you feel like can he be rehabilitated? Was that just a mistake that he made or is it more about the power? Like, can we delve into that a little bit? Can I get your opinion? Well, and I mean, again, this is one of those things like, so, so rape has been politically seen as 
it's about power, not about sex. That's mm-hmm. sort of the been the political, and that that comes out of like feminist psychological theory from like the seventies. And there's there's really nothing that supports that that is actually true. Um, in my evaluations of of evaluating lots and lots of rapists, I mean it's about sex. Power may be part of it, and and some of these men may be driven by the fact that they felt out of control in other areas of their lives. And when they wanted the sex part, they just were going to take it regardless. But I don't think you can separate a sexual act from sex. Right. Yeah, <laughs> there's no. A, there's a lot of way to exert power over people. You can just like be an asshole to people too. I mean, that's one way to do it. But um, I think it's hard to identify one particular act, especially especially something that was so highly publicized in the media and um, make any kind of generalization about it. I do think, though, going back to some of the issues around what we teach boys and girls about their ability to act in the world in a way that meets their needs versus not. Right. Um, We teach boys they're allowed to take what they want. We teach yeah. boys that they are allowed, they're kind of entitled to the attention and good feelings they get from women. Right. I think you're also talking about an age group, someone who's in college, who has not yet fully developed all of the frontal lobe executive function judgment planning piece um, that typically comes online later. So uh, young adult offenders tend to, you know, fall into this group of offenders that don't necessarily recidivate as they get older, because once those areas are more fully matured, and as I said, most offenders do not reoffend. I mean, 85% of sexual offenders do not reoffend. And that's a low estimate. Some of the estimates are as high as 90. But, you know, somewhere between 85 and 90% of offenders who are first-time offenders will never commit another sex offense. So do I think Brock Turner is going to commit another sex offense? I don't know him. I didn't evaluate him. I have never talked to him. My guess would be no. I mean, Um, I think it'd be really dumb if he did because he would be... (laughs) I think I think it's a confluence of, you know, I mean, again, like this one person, but I think Mm -hmm. you have a confluence of issues that come together, alcohol, youth, being stupid, being entitled. Maybe he really was convincing himself that, you know, being unconscious was an okay uh, state to be in. You know, I don't know. You'd have to you'd have to have a more thorough conversation with him. But I, I just think that. This is a whole other area, but young people and talk again, talking to them about sexuality and what is acceptable and not acceptable. I mean, you know, it's hard. I have two boys and I think, you know, there, there have been situations, not this one, but you know, if two people are intoxicated, the boy and the girl are both intoxicated um, and something takes place, it is often the boy who is going to be the one who's said to have been the one who was the aggressor or who took advantage of the situation. And sometimes that is the case. And sometimes there are people who who are looking for peop- women who are vulnerable. Right. Um, but that's not always the case. And so, again, it's like one of these things where it's it's really messy. And, and sexuality 
and the way we talk about it and the way we deal with it is is so not clear that it's a wonder that most of us get through our adolescence, our early adulthood, our college years, and kind of come out the other side with any kind of healthy um, way to express that right. with another person. And a lot of us don't. I mean, how many women are in their 40s and have never had an orgasm with their partner? I mean, you know. Too many. So, <laughs> right, right. So I guess I'm not really answering the question, but I, I think it's just like another one of those things where we just don't, we don't know. We don't know. Um, well, and, and we're not doing itself, a good job teaching it. We certainly are not doing a good job teaching it. But th- you did answer the question. Like it, it wasn't like a yes or no, but it, it, it is an answer regardless. So you're good. You're doing great. So <laughs> so what, what would you say? Because we only have about five minutes left. So what would you say if you could, how, how can we start kind of cleaning up this, this whole messy, convoluted situation? What do you think is like the thing? How can we start that process? I think teaching com- comprehensive sexual education from a really young age as it's appropriate for the a- development of the children involved, but going all the way up through high school, I think is imperative. I mean, the que- one of the questions that you sent me that I thought was just so interesting, and I actually did some research into it, was whether or not pornography should be used in educating our kids. And mm-hmm. so I did a little bit of research into that. And I mean, it's an interesting proposition because we want people to be good consumers and so you kind of have to show them what's out there i mean you know it's like we wouldn't buy our kids video games and not have any idea what's in them do i mean we shouldn't do that like why are we letting them venture out into the world of you know internet porn and not having any conversation about what's out there right and there are actually good examples of pornography that you know would be more um healthy to view right. and, uh, and it's and, a little more like educational as opposed to just you know right right yeah. that, that's just objectified and this idea that like you know because because we know they're going to see it like it's not it's not that's not a question it's so, going to happen yeah <laughs> so how are we going to have the conversation with them about it i think you know talking about the full spectrum of sexual behavior about not just it's about making babies when you're married, you know, it's about pleasure and it's about intimacy and reciprocity and mutuality and affection and love and all those complicated things. That's part of it too. And then I think all of us have to like be more open to the idea that, you know, not everything that we were taught is, is always accurate that, you know, we should be able to take in new information and learn from it and change our opinions. Um, you know, it's so funny to me. We look at the age of marriage in this country. It's going up and up and up. Do mm-hmm. we really think all of our kids are going to be virgins till they're 30? Oh my God. <laughs> like, and, and in it's, fact, it's there's, naive there's, to think that way. I there's think. data that suggests that actually that, um, while early onset of sexual activity may be a risk factor for a lot of issues for kids, late onset is actually a problem as well because it can lead to issues of sexual dysfunction or low self-esteem or a lack of confidence in someone's ability to be able to perform sexually. Like there's, there's problems on both ends. Right. So being a 40-year-old virgin is not necessarily the greatest <laughs> thing in the world, you know? But we don't talk about that. We don't really engage in that conversation. And I, and I think we should we could learn from the Dutch. 
you know, like in, in Dutch families, children are taught about this. It's an open conversation in schools and in homes. And when they are old enough, which is usually around 16, 17, they're in a committed relationship. Parents allow their kids to bring their partners home. Yeah. Which I think I, I don't have a problem with that. Like it, it's, it's something, I mean, yeah, it's uncomfortable to think about my daughter, you know, bringing home a guy, but it, that's my discomfort. You know, I don't think that's that I need to be like pushing that onto her. As long as she's in a place where she's, you know, emotionally, and like mature and emotionally ready. Like, I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it feels weird to say that out loud, but you know, let's be real, <laughs> being honest right now. I mean, she's two, so I, I have some time to get used to the idea, but. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally okay with it. It's funny, I, I tell my husband, I'm like, hey, if they're both 16 and they're in a relationship and everything's copacetic, you know what, go for it. And my husband's like, oh my God, that's what college is for. You're supposed to go away to college. And I'm like, no, you're not actually. I mean, what's, what is less likely going to lead to situations of coercion and abuse and all that stuff being in the safest place you've ever been your home. Yes. And when you start not fumbling around at some frat party or in a car or when everybody's drunk and and you're not sure and, and it, it can be very it can be very intimidating, but, and yeah, no, that's just, that's not the, the way to do it. I don't think. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a, a book, not under my roof, which is written by, um, Oh God, Amy something chalet. I think Shallot. she's a professor out of university of Massachusetts. And she sort of documents the differences between the way Dutch families talk about sex and engage in sex with their teenagers and Americans. And it's, it's stark. And I, I will tell you when I, when I taught at Roger Williams, I, I mean, I had a class from a college student. So I'm like, how many of you talk to your parents about sex? And like, none of the hands go up. And I'm like, what is wrong? Like you're, right. your, your kids, you know, you're arguably like these, these, you're, these are the privileged kids, right? They, they're going to school where it's 50 grand a year and their parents aren't talking to them about sex. So now imagine being in a household where there's, drug abuse and, mm-hmm. you know, like broken relationships with the parents and there isn't a lot of supervision and they're in a community where there's a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, imagine all that. How much harder is it to navigate this stuff? Right. And it's already so, I mean, I guess if we start the, the conversations younger, then it's not so hard to navigate, but it is. It's always something that's like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a grown person and trying to navigate sex even now. Like, it's difficult because you want to be open and honest about it. But like, there's still all these really deep seated misconceptions and judgments and things that are there. It's it's really it's it's hard as a grown up. Like, I don't know how people try to do this when they're just getting into college. Like, ugh. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you add the complications them. of alcohol and everything else on top right. of it and forget about it. And then and just to expect them to to be like, oh, you're married now now you can do this and go have fun when like their entire identities were based around being virgins and things like that. Like that in itself is problematic as well. Cause now, now what do they do? You know, like they have no reference. I don't know. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. Okay. So, so we I have, I don't know if I answered your questions about addiction and pornography and, <laughs> you know, that's okay. Cause we could always retitle the episode <laughs> because th- th- I love the conversation that we just had. Like I would rather have a really good conversation and get a little bit off topic than yeah. So we'll, we'll call it something different. We, 
But regardless, this has been a great conversation and we have about a minute left. So I guess, I mean, thank you for taking your time tonight to talk to me and to get everything all set up on your end. I know that that was kind of a a thing really fast, but thank you. And and it's it's been a really uh, enlightening conversation because the you mentioned something about power, about it being about power, not about sex. And that's always what I was taught. So you have taught me something new tonight, Dr. Angela. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, if you want to have power over something, you can just punch him in the nose. I mean, yeah, like that works. So Exactly. Exactly. Okay, well, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. And if I have any more questions, like I'm definitely going to like hit you up because you are a wealth of knowledge. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. And I, I like I said, I would definitely um, hit up Kristen because she's amazing. And I'll, I'll look forward to listening to your is the show out yet. Have you launched it already? No, we release on um, the 7th on March 7th is going to be our okay. first um, show. We're going to release on on Wednesdays because it's hump day. Ha ha. And uh, oh, but yeah, that's so, very cute. Right. So when we get it up and going, I'll uh, have Charles send you a link to your interview so you can listen back to it and so you can find it. Yeah. And I'm hoping, I mean, my own podcast, which sort of like went into hiatus in December, it was supposed to be for a month and we haven't gotten back up and running yet for a million reasons. But I'm hoping this will inspire me because I can sort of capitalize on having been a guest on your show and be like, okay, here we are. We're back. So I love it. Well, and and uh, what is your podcast? So um, I am one of the hosts of Chasing the Mind, which is a Chasing podcast looking at the art and science of psychology. My co-host, Dr. Stephanie Schwartz, um, who was with me for like last season. I don't know if she'll, if, when we relaunch, if she'll be as, uh, as much a part of the show. She's got a lot going on. But we just talk about all topics in psychology and we relate them to people's stories and um it's been it's been really interesting but uh, a lot of things came together to mean that we haven't gotten back on the air yet so but this is going to motivate me well good yay well thank you so much i really appreciate it and i hope you have a great rest of your evening if you have anything that you'd like to add or that's it for today's episode thanks again to angela johnson for sharing her knowledge with us today Thank you to KRFC for having us on the KRFC Podcasting Network. Thanks to Ryan Pruitt for our theme song. And thank you for listening to the show. See you all next time. And as always, proper communication and consent, folks. podcast you just heard was recorded with anchor if you want to make your own download the android or ios app completely free from anchor.fm slash podcast that's anchor.fm slash podcast